Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuha. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on uh, Monday, July 29, 2019, week two at Block Island, Rhode Island. Right. Family vacation right. of the Grabuhoffs. Cast of thousands for the podcast. Exactly. Let me introduce. We have Bryce and Lorna and Granger and Nico and Sadie, in addition to Dan and Tamsin. Exactly. And uh, Bryce and Lorna flew here from South Carolina. Yesterday. Yeah. Uh, uh, Bryce pilots his own aircraft, uh, and he uh, came in uh, right on schedule last night, yesterday evening, 6 o'clock. How would you like the airport, Bryce? Oh, it was very nice. It's very, very adequate. Very adequate. They're high praise from the pilot himself. So he'll be back many Smooth times, I'm flight. sure. Oh, yeah. Although yeah. he had a few snarky things to say about uh, the New York uh, tower control people. Traffic yeah. control, yeah. Traffic control, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. They, uh, they're they a little bit uh, quick in talking and and uh, expect you to understand exactly what they're saying all the time. Even though they say it in New Yorkese. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's not like you have to hear everything they're saying. They're only air traffic control. I mean, <laughs> if you get 60% of what they're saying, you're probably going to be close enough for the landing. If yeah, right. they, they want 100%. Yeah, really. Anyway, we're glad you made it. And, of course, uh, Nico and Granger have been here a few days. They came in more conventional ways on the ferry. Sadie, I've uh, been here during the duration uh, with me and Tamsin. And, of course, a regular guest, a veteran podcast guest. Right? May I just say, yes. the weather has been spectacular. It is amazing, yes. It's been warm. It's been sunny. And it's a great We've vacation. We've been beaching it's, it every day. It's been a great vacation. Yes. It's a great vacation. So first impressions of Block Island. Lorna. The water's really cold, <laughs> but uh, it's a lot more... There's a lot more vegetation than I expected. I expected more sand and bluffs and rocks, and there, it's quite beautiful, all the... The flowers and bushes and shrubs. All the houses are gray. Yes. You know, most of them. A lot of foliage, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's uh, really an amazing sort of New England kind of uh, landscape. And uh, a lot of hills. What do you think, Bryce? Oh, I, I thought it had a little bit of flavor of being away from the, the usual uh, mainland. It almost has like a Europey. Uh, flavor to it. It's uh, like being in another world. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. More like Europe in like the uh, 12th century. But yes, <laughs> sometime before the invention of uh, restaurants. But uh, it, and now, Wi-Fi. And Wi-Fi, that's for sure. Yeah. It has otherworldly uh, feel to it. It's different. And one, it's funny. It's Physically, it's an island. And once you step on the island, you are in a different place. So it's physically mm. and virtually, uh, it's us connected. But so here we go. So here's something that's also disconnected. If I can we didn't get in. any impressions from Nico and Granger. All right, go They've ahead. Been You've been here, here many they're, times. They're, 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 they're veterans. But, uh, they're like Block how, Island natives. How does the island strike you this time? This is the best weather we've had at Block Island. Okay. Yeah. And you've been you've taken advantage of it. You've been in the water every second. Yeah, we did some swimming. Um, we've enjoyed the beach. We've gone running. Nico's gone biking. Yeah, I'm learning more of the island, biking, getting lost, biking again, getting more lost, and then finally figuring out the roads, even though there's only three of them. And the hills. The hills are small, but they're deadly, aren't they? Yes. And they're one after another. 
Yeah. Lots of hills, short hills, and there, steep hills. there's no downhill. That's the amazing thing. It's just one uphill <laughs> after another. No, there are downhills. Oh, you gave it away. Yes. But the problem is, you have to, if you have to come back home, there's yeah. always an uphill. That's right. But we didn't mention the big day Saturday. Oh, that's for yes. The, the reason we swam in the, the Great Salt Pond. The reason we're mile here. Mile swim. The reason we're here. Yes. And how was that this year, Sadie? Well, I had to brave it by myself this year because mom was not a willing participant, but it was perfect. I wasn't a participant at all, <laughs> willing or otherwise. I sat this one out. Yes, but it was perfect conditions, which we have never seen before. And I think that was because, mom, you were not part of it. <laughs> they said, Tamsin's not coming. Okay, the sky will be clear. Yes, it was a beautiful day. And it's, uh, we should say, it's a mile-long swim in the salt pond which seems like it would be pristine and easy swimming, but I understand sometimes the water can be a little bit rough and it's not perfect conditions for swimming, right? Also, someone next to me almost took me out. They were trying to grab at my feet. It's rough in there. Yeah. It's a difficult race. It's, <laughs> it's every man for themselves. Right. It, is an it odd turns out a mile is, is a fairly long way to it swim. It is a long way to swim. Yes, it is a long way. And, and you, every time you look up at a buoy, it seems very far away. But then when you walk around town afterwards and you had uh, the magic marker on your arm with your uh, starting time mm -hmm. and your number, um, people noticed you. Did they, did they get reactions to that? I didn't... None. No, <laughs> I didn't Wait, no, that's not true. A lady pulled over in a car. Oh, yes, and asked me how the race was. Yes, yeah. in a car. <laughs> pulled over, stopped traffic right. to chat her up. And she has a medal. I'm basically a local celebrity now. Yeah. 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 And, just face it. and huge swag. So it was all working. All right. What did you want to tell us about? I, that look, was so important. This is this what got me going last week. I, I have to, it seems otherworldly, a little bit like, like Block Island. It's, it's, there's a Dutch tradition, which sadly enough is called droppings. Uh, and, <laughs> but what's dropped are children, pre-teenage children, are dropped in the woods almost like a scout exercise, but it's a rite of passage for all Dutch children. And they are not given much in the way of directions. They're given what's called a primitive GPS, which seems to me a contradiction in terms. But in any event, something but not much of a clue of where to go. It's near midnight, and they're th pushed into the woods and told to find the base. And these 11-year-old, 12-year-olds wander around, often for hours, Sometimes their, their trip made a little more frightening by parents and leaders hiding in the bushes and making animal-like sounds until they eventually stagger, completely disoriented, to the base. And that's the rite of passage. It's called droppings. And they say that it doesn't make any sense unless you're Dutch, because that's the way the Dutch think of childhood. The Dutch say that children are taught, and I'm reading from the article now, taught not to depend too much on adults. Adults are taught to allow children to solve their own problems. Droppings distill these principles into an extreme form. Banking on the idea that even for children who are tired, hungry, and disoriented, there is a compensatory thrill to being in charge. This, is, this really reminds me a great deal of our children making their way home from Cranberry School <laughs> in the late afternoon winter. Listen, it's this is Tired, crazy. hungry, we a little walked, confused. We walk to and from school every day by ourselves. Yeah. Look, I don't doubt that they were a little confused. But here, uh, I thought this was insane. 
Uh, and they do manage to interview one American who says this is insane and it's child abuse and whatever. But uh, Listen, they... we've been to the Netherlands. Yeah. And the Dutch seem very competent. <laughs> I was gonna I, say, am I wrong? Aren't am they I kind wrong? of an elevated group of beings? I, look, I, it I, may well be. Well, look, is it, everybody okay with this? This all makes sense to everybody? I actually agree with it. All right, there you go. <laughs> so there you go. How long are they? Oh, in... I didn't mention sometimes they're blindfolded. Oh, no. no, no, no. Now that's going <laughs> over the line. No, not, not in the woods, but they're blindfolded in the car. So that when they're driven there, they'll have no idea where they yeah. are. How could they read the GPS? <laughs> well, they have, how long would it take to figure out to take the blindfold off? The so Dutch, yeah, Lord, a hardy group. Bryce, you're for it all? Uh, yeah, I'd have to say I, I don't object to it. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Nico and Grain, uh, Nico's shocked. <laughs> they don't do this uh, in your background? And uh, you no, the, no. There's no, no cultural match Latinos for this? Latinos really like uh, coddling their children. You're right? Yeah, very... Mm. Touchy feeling, making sure I don't fall here. All right. Yeah, well, then right. there's a different point. I was hoping yet, someone would express a different point. And it's the Dutch who are taking over the world. I, I, there's no evidence of the Dutch taking over the world. That's None. True. That's None. true. <laughs> it's kind of quite the contrary. They've, they've reached a level where they know they don't have to take over the world. They're very mature. Okay with they're that. They can find their way out <laughs> of the world. How common is this? They say it's common. It's standard operating procedure in the Netherlands. Like every family? No, there's no such thing as every family. But let's say it's at least, and I think even more so, as common as scouting is in the U.S., but I, I, I get the sense that scouting is actually more commonplace and more popular even in the Netherlands than it is here, and it's a scouting event. You know, yeah. isn't there that thing in Norway where um, the uh, high school graduates yes. go out and drink like crazy right. and find their ways home right. afterwards? They drink like, yeah, drink themselves senseless. It's a little different. Yeah. It's, it's a little different. Yeah, uh, but not entirely. <laughs> Look, it's different. It's different. Yeah. It's kind of like their uh, bar mitzvah. I gotta tell you, when I was thirteen, if we had blindfolded Isaac Yokelson, left him in the woods, we never would have seen him again. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> true. A little shout out to Isaac. Exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, Isaac. The name Isaac Yokelson doesn't appear in this article, but if it did, it would um, be in that context. All right, moving right, right along. There are a couple of uh, you know sad stories about this, but in any event, that's the way they do it. Oh, really? Sometimes it goes well, bad. Yeah, but not as bad as I thought. There have been a couple of automobile accidents, but oh. there there haven't been situations where, and and of course, there's been scandal. But there haven't been situations where a kid was found six weeks later or something like that. That hasn't happened. Sometimes, you know, overnight. Nobody just let their kids take six weeks to come home. (laughs) You know, they're Dutch. They're not stupid. I just had to get that out. I've been sitting with this, steaming about it for a few days, but I'm glad. Okay. uh, Not a a big article here, but one uh, in the New York Times magazine section about Arcadia Publishing. Now, actually... and. we are all familiar with the, what this uh, Kathleen Rooney is writing about. It's these little books. She's writing about um, these photographic histories of various towns and areas. Um, you've seen them. You've seen them in the bookstore, and uh, it, it will have like Cranberry, New Jersey, and it will have uh, vintage photographs collected from the community. All throughout, and they are from every state. Uh, in fact, it, this was started in. It's a South Carolina-based business. Started in 1993, and they have uh, all 50 states are represented. In fact, there are 15,000 titles in print. And uh, you know, we're here in Block Island. 
I have several of these books at home, um, and they're about every possible town in New they, Jersey. They have some text in them besides photographs. They have, it's not just yeah, photographs. not a whole lot of text, right. um, but uh, they really have acted as little sort of um, photo albums for the history of your town. Right. Uh, and it, it's just kind of amazing that uh, somebody's made a business out of this, and it's a big business. Really? And, uh, you know, it's uh, the article isn't that positive about the quality of the text or anything. Right. They say they risk being a little bit boring, um, probably if you're not uh, invested in the community. But uh, when we get when we get back to civilization, I'll uh, show you. Well, one but of the I books. think it's like you were showing us the pictures uh, yesterday of uh, your, you know, Tamsin and, and Bryce's family growing up. I mean, it's that kind of thing. But it's the story of a town. And I think one of the points made in the article, whether it helps them sell books or not, is that you know what's history. In a sense, what they're saying is what's history is the way people live their lives, and it's the mundane way they live their lives. So the story is here's where the power plant opened. And here's when there was the big fire at so-and-so place in, in 1927. And these events don't make it into world history books, but this is the way people live their lives, and this is actually living history. It's and the point. One of the books I bought was the um, uh, uh, something about the inns of Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Really? And it shows all these, you know, various eating establishments from way far back. Yeah. Uh, uh, up to the present, and it's it's very nostalgic. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, you're right; it's a way of telling history. Yeah, oh, it's interesting. So, uh, here's a fellow named Hugh Southern died, uh, and he's a director of certain cultural institutions in the U.S. But what he did begin, uh, he founded, was the TKTS booth, the tickets booth in, in Broadway. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. I'm looking no. at Bryce and Warner. So in the middle of Times Square, not, well, Duffy 47th Square. Street or well, whatever. Duff, Duffy Square, yeah. Duffy Square. Um, there's a uh, row of windows yeah. and people line up to buy. Yeah, Nico's not. You guys are familiar with that, right? You know, yeah. Essentially yeah. half price tickets to Broadway mm -hmm. shows. Well, that's, that's the idea. Whatever Broadway shows haven't sold out. Uh, you can line up and get them at a bargain rate. Right. And uh, sometimes it's fabulous. You get to see great stuff well, at a um, cheap price. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, to be honest, we've stood for hours. And not done well. So it started in 1973. So this guy was uh, the head of what's called the Theater Development Fund. And John Lindsay was mayor. And they were trying to boost the sales of uh, Broadway shows. And they said, look, Broadway shows are expensive. We have some empty seats. Can we fill the seats by selling some tickets half price? And they set up a trailer on 47th Street, and they listed the shows that they had that were being offered half price tickets. And initially, people fought it. The theater owners fought it. They said, no, no, once people know there's half price, they won't pay full price. And they said, no, it's different. The people want to plan and want to come from out of town, whatever. They have to have the tickets in hand. They have to know their seats and everything. But, you know, this is spur of the moment, and it will be uh, a chance to fill the theaters. And it works. The theaters are filled. Uh, but what, what surprised me about it, and Tams is right, it's a mixed experience because it's, it's gotten more complicated. So sometimes you wait online and it's not half price, it's two-thirds price or it's three-quarters price or it's half price of the most expensive ticket. You didn't know such an expensive ticket existed or it, it, there's all kinds of Yeah, half glitches. price for a ticket that's 189 bucks. It's 90 bucks. It's, yeah, it's still so, a so lot it doesn't of money. Work. But, but in any event, that's the concept. But here's what's interesting to me. Sometimes I'm sitting in a, I'm sitting down at a show and I'm looking around and you see a lot of people from out of town in particular and you say, 
Yeah, those people bought this at the TKTS ticket booth. I hope they know what they're getting into because I know that this play is not necessarily for everybody. We'll see. And in my head, I, I think I have a general sense of what percentage of TKTS uh, purchasers are in the theater. Uh, and I would, I send, tend to think it's like 25% for a lot of performances or even more. But what's your guess as to what it is? Because they have the figure here, so what percentage of I don't of even seats? have a guess, but tell I, me the figure. I think it depends on the type, because I saw Mamma Mia, Mia yeah. from a TKTS purchase, and I feel like that's probably 50% TKTS every day. I yeah. feel like those long-standing musicals that just need to fill the theater, those are more so like Jersey Boys, things like that. Right. But if you have something like Hamilton, obviously that's not selling anything. Well, that's a good TKTS. point. So maybe that's so, so it's a really low number. It turns out that TKTS accounts for eight percent of the seats on. Yeah, but I think Sadie has a good point. Say zero percent right. for yeah. some things yeah. and fifty percent for other. But things. also, I think yeah. what's happened since they introduced TKTS is that there are additional discount plans that have gone into place. There are other ways to get discount tickets for Broadway right. other than TKTS. So a lot of people are buying discount tickets the day of or the two days before, even a week before, and they're not using the TKTS booth. So I almost feel like notwithstanding that it's only 8%, it's a little bit like an airline. And when you're sitting there in a commercial airline, she, I, they don't, no one knows this, but Lauren is nodding at what I'm saying, that uh, everyone's paying a different price. And it's, well, it's not like a, a hotels as well. Yeah, hotel. That's right. right. It's a different price. It's a way to price discriminate. That's what price discrimination is. That you have different prices, and people pay as much as they are willing to pay. And that actually helps the but seller. But do people feel it was a success? Oh yeah, that's why. Yeah. That's why his obituaries in the Times. There's no other reason. Okay. Uh, because that's uh, that that institution has flourished. And his name? His name is Hugh Southern. So that was sort of like the early price line for. All exactly. Stuff. Yeah, so he and really invented a new genre of how to buy. Well, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly. exactly right, and that's why it was considered such a. People protested. They said, "No, no, no. Well, what are you doing? You're giving our product away." And he's saying, "Actually, it will benefit you, because." And that's true. Price discrimination feels like the buyer is being benefited because the buyer is only paying what the buyer wants to pay, but it really benefits the seller, because like you were talking earlier today about what we call sometimes a Dutch auction. Price and what's the price? Uh, you snatch the price as it goes down. It's the same idea. The seller has to choose a price that they think is op optimal, and because of the pressure of trying to appeal to a wide enough audience, the seller will generally go to a lower price than he otherwise would be comfortable with. If the seller can price discriminate, they'll charge the people most interested a much higher price than that, and they'll basically tier it in such a way mm -hmm. so that maximum revenue goes to the seller. And that's what TKTS did for the Souls of Broadway shows. The other thing I should mention about Broadway, and I don't know who's going to respond to this, but who's familiar with Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell? Yes. Yeah. I'm raising a, my hand. Mom is a huge Meatloaf fan. Okay. Oh, yeah. Bryce, yeah, too? Bryce Laura? Classic. All right, everybody's on to that. All right, good news for everybody. It's going to be a Broadway show. Wow. Uh, well, maybe well, not Broadway. Already, it's it, already a show. It's a show. It's been touring for years. It's finally going to get to Broadway. And, and it's gonna, I mean, well, it's hasn't be Meatloaf soon. always been a show? Yes, he, <laughs> he has. But, you know, that's uh, full disclosure. Meatloaf's not in it. Wait a minute. Is it one out of three ain't bad or two out of three? Two out of three ain't Sorry, bad. Just... One out of three is bad. Okay. <laughs> just so we're clear. For the future. Well, Meatloaf's uh, style of sing singing, I think, would lend itself well to theatrical performance. Well, here's what Jim, apparently Jim Steinman, the guy who wrote it in Meatloaf, have been feuding on and off for years. And now they're not feuding. But in any so now they're saying nice things about each other, even though they sued each other in the past. And what Jim Steinman says um, is that uh, Meatloaf, in his mind, is one of the great singers. He literally says in this article that he, le has, he lends an operatic quality 
to his performance, and therefore it's hard to match him. And Meatloaf himself is quoted in this article is saying, it's kind of a, a, a great quote. He said that, um, uh, yes, he says that he's, he only felt pride at seeing the show's cast perform it in London. Quote, nobody will ever do it the way I do it, he said. <laughs> it's not a jealousy thing or an ego thing. It's just how I do things. People don't do them that way. There's something to that. But uh, but this cast is going to do what it can do. So my question is, is it a jukebox box musical in the sense that there's a storyline that goes yeah. with the there's a storyline that goes with the music yes but i always thought that album had a storyline that went with it right Didn't, so i think it's more it's kind of like moving out the billy joel i think it's, box i think it's kind of like tommy that, actually tommy which was a rock opera and it was set up that way from the beginning with this was almost set up that way to begin with well yeah but i mean have you seen moving out I feel like you have Well, Moving Out was the best because it was a Twyla Tharp jukebox musical. So but I'm just saying that's different investment. than like Jersey Boys yes. where it's just kind of interspersed with it. No, I agree with that. Twyla Tharp made it different and, and that's why that does stand on a different plane. So I agree with that. But I think this was conceived from the beginning in the way that Billy Joel did it, uh, of putting these songs on the Bad Out of uh, Hell album um, in a way that they made sense as a story from the outset. Kind of like American Idiot, actually, by Green Day. That's the way that album was. Is that right? Supposed to okay, function. So I don't know it that went album. to Broadway like All right. That. Well, okay. And it was a success on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it yeah. was. Uh, all right. So that's all I have from Broadway, Captain. All right. Now going to the Ivory Coast, to Abidjan. I can't uh, really pronounce that properly. I am sure. And uh, this is an interesting project, okay? Um, in this uh, city, uh, uh, women supplement uh, their family incomes by collecting recyclables. And so they may go out at night and uh, throughout the uh, neighborhoods and collect recyclables and then uh, sell them to a middleman and then they go into recycling. There's a lot of garbage here, a lot of plastic waste, approximately 300 tons Per day, and as it stands now, um, uh, let me. Oh, I've lost. Uh, I lost the number. Five. Five percent of it is recycled. Okay, but good news may be on the horizon in a couple of different aspects. A um, the uh, Dr. Campo, a medical doctor who just ended a term as the Ivory Coast representative for UNICEF has recruited Conceptos Plasticos, a for-profit plastic recycling company with a social mission of building housing and creating jobs for poor people. And he has contracted them to uh, build, uh, to create plastic bricks to be used in building classrooms uh, in this town, in the Ivory Coast. And uh, there's this huge need for classrooms. Right now, uh, more than 90 kids may be crammed in one little room. And Conceptos Plasticos has been contracted to deliver 528 rooms for about 26,000 students at 50 students per room. So this has a couple of good effects. One is 
these superior classrooms, all right? The plastic will, the plastic bricks will probably last forever, right? Like our plastic bags uh, in the landfill, okay? Um, they uh, are fire retardant, stay cool in hot weather, and so they seem like a superior solution to this problem. Plus, to make the plastic bricks, you need more plastic. You need more, there's more of a demand for these recyclables. So these women anticipate being able to get higher prices uh, for the things they are collecting. Now, these women are pretty interesting. Um, in fact, they have a, an association called the Fighting Women. Um, and they support each other, and they pool um, some of their, uh, I guess, uh, profits, their income from selling the recyclables to a middleman to be used, uh, to be distributed to women who are ill or whatever. I mean, it, it's quite an interesting organization, but they also, you know, uh, feel that uh, this new demand will be giving them a new market and hopefully will be increasing the prices you know there is some hope that uh, um, the uh, um, recycling itself will go up to um, I don't know uh, each classroom takes about five tons uh, in and of itself so it's an interesting project it's an interesting company Oscar Mendez and his wife Isabel Gomez, Gomez, Gomez. Um, it has an A. She said Gomez. Gomez? Yeah. Gomez, okay. Um, we'll be moving to the Ivory Coast to set up this business. And uh, I think it's just fascinating. And did you notice it's for profit? Mm -hmm. Okay. Which uh, I think is interesting as well. They also, uh, they also um, indicated in there sometime they were going to open a factory there sometime. Yeah. Also, well, that's that's the deal of it. Yeah. They are coming to the Ivory Coast to open that right. factory, and, and they're going to have a direct use, yep, yep. Um, a direct, uh, you know, sort of end use for those women collecting uh, the recyclables. Before all this happened, the leader of the Fighting Women had been considering a new line of work. Selling cold drinks. <laughs> but now, she says, we think there is a future in plastic. Does that mean we can use plastic bags again at the supermarket? Is that where this is going? No, but it, it does mean, I mean, you're being a little flip about this. But, yeah. uh, the, you know, um, this variety is of plastics. And the, the article does also point out that the... Um, this kind of use actually makes use of different kinds of plastics that aren't often used, like snack packaging and cell phone parts. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we really have to find some way okay. to deal with all this uh, garbage we're creating. Uh, all right. Well, listen, uh, so I, have, I have a story that can match you in terms of trash. It's going to be right up there. Right? Dueling trash story? Yes, and here it is. I'm going to show this photograph, which is not going to look like too much. That is a picture of an In-N-Out burger in a paper wrapping, which was found, I believe, in New York, was photographed, and was put on social media, and according to the Times, at least, who has a limited knowledge of such phrases, became a so-called viral sensation. Because it floated, actual... it floated all the way from California? No. It's an actual burger. It's, it's a... not the institution. No, you're right. Because when you it... say it's an In-N-Out burger, I think, oh, it's 
and restaurant. Yet, In-N-Out Burger seems descriptive to me. But in any event, it's an In-N-Out Burger from the In-N-Out people who make burgers. And it was photographed here. And the reaction of one uh, Lincoln Bame, who I, I don't know anything about him, neither does the New York Times, was that, quote, it was like stumbling upon a work of art. It was like seeing the Mona Lisa for the first time at the Louvre. There was so much excitement by certain people that In-N-Out, that In-N-Out Burger was spotted on the East Coast because it meant to many people that In-N-Out was finally going to open on the East Coast. And there was all kinds of reaction, uh, including um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez weighed in uh, <laughs> about what this means in terms of In-N-Out coming to the East Coast. Uh, and it turns out that In-N-Out is not coming to the East Coast, notwithstanding all the excitement and all the publicity. Here's what happened. The mystery was solved on Wednesday after a 16-year-old high school student named Helen Vivas came forward to say that the burger had been hers. On the last day of a recent vacation, Ms. Vivas bought four In-N-Out burgers in San Diego before she flew home, keeping her precious cargo in a tightly wrapped paper bag. Well, the story is she ran to catch a bus when she got to New York and one of the burgers came loose and landed on the street. And she realized later when she reached for that burger, it wasn't there. But that burger became photographed and became the famous burger. Uh, and uh, it caused all this stir because this, uh, this poor girl, uh, poor 16-year-old girl, uh, dropped a hamburger in New York. Uh, and they end the article by saying, by quoting Ms. Vivas, who's somewhat apologetic. I'm only 16, Ms. Vivas said. I never expected to get so much attention over a burger I dropped in the street. <laughs> Why? That doesn't happen until you're 17? That's it. It depends. If you're in the Netherlands, uh, what they do is they blindfold a burger and then they just put it out there and they hope it finds its <laughs> way home. See child picks yeah. it up? Uh, that's pretty funny, though, when you think about it, that this, this, this kid... If you believe the story. You, you think it's not true? You think it's a plant? I think it's 50-50, Ms. Vivas took the picture herself. Well, even so, I don't know. But but what does she get out of it? If you've ever flown to California, especially through LAX, yeah. you know the first thing you do when you get there is you go to the In-N-Out Burger right next door. And the last thing you do before you leave is you go to the In-N-Out Burger right next door. Yeah. So... Oh, I, I disagree. I think it, I totally disagree. You go to C's Candy first. <laughs> well, I've, I've heard candy, of candy you can get anywhere now. No, yeah, you can't. You can get in the internet. You can certainly order it. But, but all right, guys, move. Let's are we all, so Everyone's I, here had in and out Burger? Yes. 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 All yes. right. We're all fans? No. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, I, uh, there's a million other burgers better than that. All right, there you go. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, eight out of ten dentists recommend. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the same idea. All right. Well, in any event, go ahead, Tamsin. Ding, ding, ding. Arts yeah. update. Yeah, the arts update. This, we all, everyone update. waits for this. Everyone kind of listens quietly through most of this. And then, uh, then well, I, I think people have been reading about uh, there's a um, series of murals in a high school in San Francisco, and the name of the high school is George Washington, and uh, the murals are about his life and times, and there are several depictions of things like slaves working in his Mount Vernon fields and uh, the uh, killing of Indians. Uh, by early Americans as well. So there's been an uproar. uproar. There's, um, and uh, students have been uh, Good. asking to have these uh, offensive images covered up, destroyed, uh, whatever. And so this is an article, uh, basically an, an op-ed article, I would call it, by Roberta Smith, art critic for The Times, addressing, you know, uh, this whole issue. Uh, 
uh, I mean, what do you do with this stuff? And uh, she mentions that, you know, it, you know, it's been coming up forever. Uh, you may remember at Rockefeller Center that uh, John D. Rockefeller destroyed a mural by the um, famous uh, artist, Mexican artist, Diego Rivera. And because it uh, depicted, uh, you know, um, communism, uh, communist heroes in a uh, positive light. Uh, he and uh, so this is not a new issue. Rivera got very pissed off and he said, if uh, somebody new buys the Sistine Chapel and decides to paint that over uh, or destroy it, should that be allowed? Um, you know, regardless of who owns the building, who, you know, who really owns the art and uh um yeah i don't think rivera has much of a point there honestly i i but but i do no i mean it's oh a, daniel i i don't it's not like the art exists if someone buys the art they can do what they want with the art i don't no one's going to buy anything that's for purpose of destroying though i don't think you're going to worry too much about that but the thing is as we were discussing before i mean so the issue had come with, up before yeah. with this particular yeah and mural this, and this is different and, from uh, the this had come up before in the 60s and 70s yeah. uh with the black panthers right and others who said these are offensive images and uh so it was looked into and actually they hired an artist dewey crumpler um to paint new murals and he went to mexico and he looked at uh the famous murals by rivera and others and uh, he came back and he agreed to do that as you know only on the condition that these old murals would not be destroyed right and uh, he painted a new series of murals um, that uh, actually um, according to roberta smith are metaphorical imposing in scale startling dynamic it's startlingly dynamic panoramas paying tribute to the achievements and cultures of black, Native American, Hispanic, and Asian peoples. Their fiery images show immense chains being broken and historic uh, um, figures such as Reverend Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, etc. Mr. Crumpler, the artist, said that art's responsibility is to tell the truth he added that to destroy those earlier murals would destroy his work as well. Yeah. Well, I, look, I think there are two things that kind of make this unique and make this the whole thing silly about whitewashing the walls. Uh, the first is that the artist, did, did you mention his name? Because I, I can't remember. The artist, a Russian emigre right. and communist named Viktor right. Arnotov. Right, so Viktor. So Viktor, uh, but as you say, the key thing, he was a communist. He wasn't, he wasn't really endorsing anything about the vision of America. That's reflected in the history of George Actually, Washington. he was giving a more truthful image exactly. of what the father of our exactly. country Exactly, so when people are, like. so to sit here and say, Oh my God, this is like American propaganda. We're whitewashing in a, in a virtual sense what happened 200 years ago uh, and endorsing it. He wasn't doing that at all. He was actually went to the trouble of showing slaves and showing the Native Americans because he thought that was an issue that people ought to deal with. So, for, so from the very outset, the artist didn't intend to put something in there that was positive on that score such that it would have to be eradicated later. And number two, of course, when Crumpler looks at this, maybe Crumpler understands this, or maybe Crumpler just takes the higher ground and says, look, whatever this fellow's point of view was, or whatever people draw from this art, it seems to me that has, it is what it is. 
and uh, I'm going to respond to it, and people might, might draw something else. But my work is only going to mean something in the context of seeing this work, this counterpart work. Uh, and therefore, he said, he only agreed to do it, as you said a moment ago, Thames, and on the condition that, in fact, the original work would not be destroyed. So uh, the whole meaning, even of his work, is tied up with the first work, which makes it even doubly wrong-headed to get rid of the first work. So the whole thing doesn't make any sense. It's just because of people's heightened sensitivities and perhaps lack of real understanding of what was going on here that they want to pull out the rug from under this and whitewash the wall. So it's a pretty poor um, example of people trying to sort of correct history. And it does feel like it's political correctness triumphing over anything that's substantive here. So, Except the I, don't, I don't think so. Except, uh, yeah. You know, it doesn't get destroyed. It shouldn't get destroyed. Right. I agree with that. Um, she does mention an example of, uh, like, the history of Columbus in Notre Dame, where they painted over. Yeah. They made it reversible. Um, but she also brings up people's point of view and opinions change. Yes, Evolution. But, but, yeah. but, but, that's, but that's not this situation. That's the funny thing, because the guy who wrote it probably did have the point of view that Washington do, was doing it incorrectly to begin with. So I don't. that's why I think it's, it's not the best example of, uh, you know, the tough it's situation. It's not a consistent example, but it's a good result. What was the result it's again? That they don't get destroyed. Right, they good. get added to. Well, okay? let's see how long that and, result uh, lasts. And she does stress yeah. that I mean, this is not that different than a particular um, idea in power. Yeah. Destroying something like ISIS, destroying great um, Middle Eastern, yeah, well, Egypt, look, Middle it Eastern. Goes, it artworks. all comes back to Hamilton. Hamilton says, who gets told to tell the story? The victors tell the story. Right? That's true. Yeah. On that right side? Okay, quickly. In Frenchtown. In, <laughs> in Frenchtown. Yeah. There's a, um, a kind of arts happening place uh, called Art Yard. Frenchtown, New Jersey. New Jersey. Yes. Okay. We Home of... Love and Oven, uh, and um, one of our favorite restaurants, absolutely. And uh, the um, now we know the story behind Art Yard, because there was this guy, there is this guy, Stephen McDonald, and uh, he's the founder of Applegate Farms. You've probably seen Applegate Farms in the Whole Foods, okay? Um, it's uh, like naturally meats. made yeah. uh, bacon, sausages, yeah. etc. Yeah. Okay, yeah. he's the founder of this. It's a long story, but uh, somehow he stumbled into. Um, he went to Hampshire College. Yeah. Um, you know where there are a lot of free thinkers. Um, <laughs> that, and, that's why um, he ended up in the smoked meats. No people would have The idea of, of doing natural smoked meats. Yeah. Okay? yeah he's a very uh, career, you know, but he, he it, The around. title of the article is "Sausage King and Queen." Yeah. And and uh, his wife, Jill Carney, who, uh, whose father was an artist, and she grew up in places like Provincetown, right. you know, living a very artsy, funky life. Yeah. And she said when she first married this sausage guy, um, people just, uh, you know, excoriated them. You know, I mean, vegetarians are in, not sausage They were not makers. high in the social So here's what happened. They're on a vacation in Florence. He has a stroke, a major stroke. And it changes his whole perspective on life. Now, he does do an amazing job of um, rehabilitating. And, uh, you know, everybody's thinking he will not be able to do anything. And he really is able to. The main thing he does is he sells his business to Hormel right. for 
hundred million dollars. That improved his health significantly. Yes. <laughs> well, it, it actually did. His yeah. wife was panicked when he was in the hospital. Um, she's thinking, I can't run a sausage company, and she doesn't have to. Hormel does. But it also enabled them to have enough money to really facilitate his rehabilitation. Uh, so that was one thing. And the other thing is, um, she grew up in, you know, Provincetown among artists, and she, you know, having all kinds of crazy celebrations and art events. So she wanted to do that in her yeah. own life. And so they bought the little, the property where, remember Elizabeth Gilbert's uh, Eat, Pray, Love shop? Yeah, 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 but that's the bring it home. It is attached to Love and Oven. It's the place, space right next to Love and Oven. It's not no, just the French town. but they own the property that Love and Oven is Yeah, on. I understand. Yeah, so they are the... So this is a Love and Oven event we're talking about here. The art yard is connected with Love and Oven. You see, that's what that's what I want Granger and right. Nico to appreciate. They're the landlords. Yeah, of Love and Oven. that's right. So this is a story. It's all about smoked meats. That's where the Love and Oven comes from, and uh, not really. But they're the landlord <laughs> now. But but let me ask you this, Sam, because I read the article, which was kind of poorly written, and uh, I know you read it too, and maybe you can understand this. Are they now developing an alternative site for Art Yard that's different from this? No, no, no. Here's a couple of things. Yeah. Number one, their home is in Irwinna. Which we've been to. Which is not too far too far from Limeport. It's where the Golden Pheasant is. It's where uh, the um, R.I.P. Golden Pheasant, yeah, the Earth one of Wild our favorite restaurants, uh, restaurants yeah. has uh, been sold, right. uh, closed down. Um, but and it used to belong to S.J. Perlman. Right. Okay. Got so it, it's got this whole Bucks County art artist sort of legacy right. uh, to it. But what's happening to Art Yard? Art Yard is expanding. You know how when we go around the corner before we get to um, Bridge Street Cafe yeah. and there are all those pipes sticking up out of the ground, yeah. the construction's going on? That's the thing? They're expanding. They bought this hatchery oh, and they're oh, building oh, a new oh, performance oh, going to be huge. site. It's oh going to be God. huge. Yeah, so that, this is a, you know, it's an empty space now for two reasons. One is they're doing construction here, which seems to have a long way to go. And the other is Colossos, rumored to be the best pizza in the Northeast, exploded a few months ago when a car went off uh, over the curb and ran into this pizza place, and the pizza place exploded. Isn't this that is totally off topic? To I, I'm just telling you, if that's what happening on all this corner. Is it's off topic? No, that's a it's, totally different corner. It's geographically linked. It's in the center no, of French no. town. <laughs> all right. Well, now I understand. So the art yard's going to be there to stay. That's good news yeah, for Julie. She's got the King same landlord. And his wife, uh, Jill Carney, are on the job. Who's a little bit of a nutcase, according to this article. But so we'll leave that for another day. I think that's a fair statement. Uh, Lyme disease. Yes, Lyme disease. All right, so I'm reading this. Let me just say, a lot of obituaries in July. I don't know if it's the heat. Yeah, it is the heat. It is the heat. But when they're when they're such a big page, the smoke meets the the death notices in the New York Times. Because I like the little people. These are not the big famous. I founded the ticket booth in. Times Square. You think that people. was a big time obituary. It, well, it got you know they didn't have to pay for it. These these people. Oh, oh for this it. is a paid obituary. This is a paid obituary oh of Mary Polly Luckett Murray. Oh, I know. You get credit for that. Eighty-five years old. Yes. Okay. Um, she grew up uh, in beaches, um, in New Jersey and Rhode Island. So we have a lot in common with her. She was uh, rather a good artist. She has works of art all over the place but the interesting thing is at a certain point she and her husband are raising their family in lime 
Connecticut. And uh, this is in um, 1975. She writes a letter. Um, her children, several of her children, have been diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Her husband and son had strange but similar rashes, and she knew others in the area. She makes a chart of all these people in Lyme who have these symptoms and sends it to a doctor, um, doctor someone somewhere at Yale, um, Dr. Alan Steer, who's in rheumatology at Yale. And in, basically, she discovered Lyme disease which has become even a bigger and bigger problem. I've had it twice myself. Um, and uh, so thank you, um, Polly, for figuring that out and bringing it to everybody's yeah, notice. I Before the, at first, it's called Lyme arthritis. Yeah. Um, they just thought it was a, fine, uh, a form of arthritis. It can result with those kind of uh, symptoms. It affects the joints, etc. But um, it was, you know... Basically a housewife, noticing what was going on in her town. I've driven by Lyme like about a hundred times. It's really going to affect my drive through eastern Connecticut a lot. All right, well, just remember Polly when you when you drive through. All right, so here's an article. This is our last article. It's about swimmers, so this will bring everybody in, except uh, maybe uh, Nico Granger and Sadie, more so someone like me, less so. Uh, but in any event, here's the deal. <laughs> I'm not sure I followed that. It's, it's a swimmer article. That you'll see your best joke. You'll, 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 you'll see this in a moment. Here's the deal. Uh, it's an article written by a guy named Richard Friedman. He says, one day a few years ago, I was rushing from the pool, dripping wet, when a man with a Russian accent stopped me and said, you must come and swim with the team. He says, I was in my early 50s, too old for the swim team, I thought, but the coach persisted. I see you are a good swimmer. He said, uh, I was intrigued. I joined. It turned out it was this sort of ragtag group of miscellaneous folks who got together to swim every morning at 5.30 in the morning. I joined it. We had a great time. We kind of were all simpatico. But we noticed that we weren't getting any faster. We were training with a swim team. We weren't getting faster. So a bunch of us got together and confronted Igor to grouse a little bit and to say, how come we're not getting faster? Ever the philosopher of the pool, Igor smiled and said, quote, you were all confused. Speed is not the goal. It is a result of perfect, beautiful technique. He says, what we're here is to make you more beautiful swimmers, not to make you faster. And once you master the technique, you will automatically become faster. Got that? And Igor was right. But that's just sort of part of the point of the article. The point was to the extent that they were rushing and trying to go faster, they were screwing up, to the extent they just gave themselves over the technique, they actually did improve their times. So what does Richard Friedman take from this? He says, well, I've been thinking a lot about this lesson lately. We all want to swim faster, and it was counterproductive the way we went about it. The same thing goes for happiness. Everybody wants to be happy, yet the more directly we pursue happiness, the more elusive it becomes. And then the article is about vacation planning and what it is about vacation and vacation planning that in some ways is counterproductive to happiness. You're excited about a vacation. You start planning. You start making hotel reservations. You start making restaurant reservations. You feel the pressure of trying to work it out perfectly. And before you know it, as you experience the whole vacation, you're not having a good time. Research shows that thinking too much about how to be happy actually backfires and undermines well-being. This is in part because all that thinking consumes a fair amount of time 
and that itself is not enjoyable. He goes on to say that the best way to experience a vacation, which has some relevance to what we're doing here, is to just experience the vacation. And on that note, I think we should go experience our vacation. Well, we, we will in just a second, but we're not quite finished. The point is... <laughs> well, well, maybe it is that point. Maybe it's just what you're trying to say. Can I just say... Spoken like a true man who's yeah. never planned his own vacation. Yes, well, that's true. <laughs> There's a parallel line of thought that says the moms are never off duty even on vacation because they're always planning the meals, they're always planning the schedule for the day, they're planning all the outings. So I'm sure he's going along while his wife is just planning everything Maybe, for him. maybe. And maybe. that's a great setup for him. So I'm happy for this guy. <laughs> woo! Woo! Uh, yes. All right. Well, maybe there's something to that. But uh, on a higher level, because we're not only moms, at a certain point your children grow up to some degree. To some degree. Without, you know, well, both. let's make it all women. How about that? Right. <laughs> My point is this. He says, look, maybe the way to have the vacation is simply hang out with friends doing something we like to do together. Uh, study after study shows social relationships are the strongest, most consistent predictor of a happy life, not exactly what you do. In the, hap in the end, happiness is just a side effect of living well. Just like speed can be the result of excellent swimming technique. And here we are, full circle. Exactly right. That was the much what I was trying to get to, full circle. Did he sound like one of your traffic controllers? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, this has been great. And uh, so we're signing off. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. See you next week. Back in America. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>